ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hi, listeners. I'm Laura Rothbrautellum, a podcast producer here at Foreign Policy, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, we're featuring an FP Live conversation between FP's editor-in-chief, Ravi Agrawal, and Eurasia Group president and founder, Ian Bremmer, who you've definitely heard about here on the podcast. During their talk, they cover everything from the Western world's response to the war in Ukraine, China's role in the conflict, and the geopolitical ripple of the last few weeks. Just a heads up, this event was recorded earlier this week, so some parts of the conversation may have been overtaken by recent events. Now, here's that conversation. Hello and welcome to FP Live, Foreign Policy Magazine's Forum for Live Journalism. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief, and it's my pleasure to be your host for the next 30 minutes. I have a terrific guest joining me today, Ian Bremer, one of the smartest analysts of geopolitics you will ever find. Now, FP Live discussions are where we bring experts and insiders to discuss world affairs. Unlike cable TV, there are no ad breaks and we get to dive deep into the issues. It's a perk of your subscription to get to ask questions. So please click on the Q&A button on Zoom and write in. Don't forget to tell us your name and which country you're in. So on to our discussion today. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is now well into its fourth week, and we're at somewhat of a stalemate. Russia's advance has slowed down, but its troops continue to encircle Kiev. Its army has bombed cities like Mariupol to rubble. This, despite punishing sanctions and behind-the-scenes attempts at diplomacy. And amid all of this, millions of Ukrainians have been forced to flee. Many thousands have died. It's Monday today at about 12.30 p.m. Eastern. I'm saying that so that we don't get dated here. Now, for this FP Live, I'd like to try and take a bit of a step back and look at how the last few weeks have changed geopolitics. I also want to project forward to see what those changes mean for the world. And for all of that, let's bring in our guest. He's no stranger to FP subscribers. Ian Bremer is the president and founder of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. He's the author of 11 books. More importantly, he has a new one out May 17th, so look out for that. It's called The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. Welcome to FP Live, Ian. Robbie, always good to see you, my friend. 
you too. Great to have you back here. So, um, Ian, before we go macro, let's just spend a few minutes on the here and now. We're coming up on March 24, which will mark one month of this war. And it's it's crazy to say that out loud. On the military front, it seems like the general state of play hasn't changed that much in the last week or so. What kinds of details or developments are you keeping an eye out for to see if the status quo changes? Well, NATO alignment is uh, still extraordinarily strong. Uh, we see a call uh, in short, uh, very short order between President Biden and uh, European leaders. Uh, he's traveling to Europe later this week. Uh, if you think about just how strong the multilateralism has been with the United States, Canada, all of Europe, the Japanese uh, in response to this Russian invasion and compare that to the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, it's as if you were talking about two entirely different administrations, just, just how dramatic mm -hmm. that's been. Um, the desire of the Europeans um, to uh, increase their defense spend uh, to prioritize NATO and national security and forward deployments. The strength in particular of a government like Poland, which has accepted 2 million refugees. We think of Poland as the outlier for the EU, as a country along with Hungary that has been a problem. It's been Euroskeptic, not any longer. No one could make an argument for Euroskepticism in this environment. Everyone recognizes they need a stronger Europe. They need a more mm -hmm. aligned Europe. So those are all things that have fundamentally changed. I mean, I'm not expecting them to change in the coming weeks, irrespective of how the war goes. On the ground, one thing that I'm watching particularly carefully is are, are the Russians going to do a general mobilization? Are they going to bring a lot more troops to the front? Because what they have right now is clearly inadequate to take Kiev. It's clearly inadequate to engage in urban warfare in the many urban mm. centers that the Russians have been attempting to surround and bomb. Um, but unless all they want to do is destroy Ukraine, which they can do with relatively limited numbers of troops, as opposed to occupy it, um, this is uh, what they have right now is wholly inadequate to the task. And so watching uh, Putin's military plans change real time as the initial plan failed, that's something I'm watching very closely. Um, and then also see to what extent they are willing um, to engage in more direct attacks mm -hmm. against Ukrainian civilians. Yes, they've hit Ukrainian civilians. Yes, it's been indiscriminate but they haven't been targeting them and they certainly haven't been trying to maximize the civilian deaths with the exception perhaps of Mariupol, a city of 430,000 that as you mentioned, Ravi, they've basically destroyed at this point. But that's not true of the rest of Ukraine. That could change in an instant. Mm. And, and the impact of that in terms of further sanctions from the Americans and the Europeans, the impact of that in terms of the potential for the Chinese to start to get more wobbly about their friendship with Putin, which they haven't been at all thus far. Those would be very interesting things to watch. Yeah, that's a great list, uh, Ian. You know, we've also been tracking the number of Russian generals who've been killed so far. And it's strange that, that this many have been in the front line. Um, and I imagine that's changing some of their calculations. Um, so with Biden's trip to Europe this week, um, what are you expecting? And, and, and as you, you get into that, 
the broader question is, I guess, you know, has the West done enough so far? Um, I think that the West has done enough. I don't think they've done it quickly enough. Uh, I think it would have been better for everyone if the Americans and Europeans had been faster to provide more military equipment. Right? I think that's a fair point. Uh, but in terms of the actual policy orientation, I'm quite aligned with what the Americans and the Europeans together have been doing. The, certainly the extent of the sanctions have gone beyond what any observer would have expected pre-invasion. And here I'm talking specifically about the willingness of the Americans to take on higher energy costs at home in an environment of high inflation because of what the Russians have done. That's very surprising. It's bipartisan. I'm also talking about the willingness of the Americans and the Europeans to freeze Russian central bank assets. Hmm. I mean, there was a big debate about SWIFT and will they, will they not be caught up in the middle of this? They took half measures as a consequence. But the decision to freeze more than half of the $600 billion in reserves that the Russians have, that's a weaponization of America's economic strength that had never been used heretofore against the large economy. And it's really hurting the Russians. So, um, you know, you're now looking at up to 15% contraction of Russian GDP in one year. That's a depression. It's a severe depression on the back of a, an economy that was already underperforming. The Russians and it could get still, worse. Yes. And the Russians are still making a lot of money, of course. Um, and they're making a lot of money by selling gas to Europe. And that is one of the most disturbing realities of this war is that the Europeans are funding the Russian war effort to pay for Russian gas that they need. And the Ukrainians are transiting it via pipelines that also bring gas from Eastern Europe into Ukraine. Crazy, Just not crazy. sustainable. But uh, as the Germans announced yesterday with a large long-term deal for gas with the Qataris, um, the desire of the Europeans to decouple themselves from Russian energy as quickly as humanly possible is true across the board. It's the Italians, it's the Germans, it's everybody. The, the Polish government and the Baltic states would like to see them rip that up now. Um, the Europeans, the West Europeans are not willing to take that cost on themselves thus far. The French are the one major Western European government that has expressed a willingness to consider it. But of course, the vast majority of France's energy comes from domestic nuclear production. So it's not really an issue for them. If you were advising NATO leaders or, you know, U.S. leaders, are there any other pressure points uh, left to sort of uh, hit Putin on hard in a way that might change something? Or do you think that he has to go through with this either way at this point? Look, more oligarchs getting hit, I think, is useful. Um, I think more incentives for Russian soldiers uh, to uh, leave, to, to lay down their arms, um, you know, to ensure that they will, you know, be able to, you know, get some, get a place to live. They're not, that they're, that they're going to be welcomed, you know, that kind of thing. I think that could be helpful in this environment too. But again, I, I, I honestly think that we're, we're picking at the edges, I mean, there was a big fight about whether or not the Americans should be providing Polish MiGs um, to Ukraine. And the debate inside the White House was whether or not the MiGs would ever fly because the Russians would be able to knock them down uh, from their bases to blow them up if they chose to. 
Um, and so ultimately they decided not to. I mean, that is at the end of the day, when you've got NATO uh, governments across the board sending stingers, sending javelins, sending, you know, the most advanced sniper rifles, I mean, all of this equipment, air defense, major air defense, batteries, uh, th this is, I mean, th you're sending them that equipment to blow up Russian soldiers, right? I mean, the Russians see this as war. Um, not just war against Ukraine, but war against NATO. So I, I mean, I, I do give high marks, not just to the Biden administration, I give high marks to NATO. And I give high marks, frankly, to the Republicans in the US, most of whom largely support the Biden administration's policy on this. I, I, I believe that they've done most of what you would want the West to do. And by the way, Robbie, it's failing. It's failing. Um, the Russian government is being punished immensely. Putin will be in vastly worse position as a consequence of this invasion, economically, politically, and certainly from a geopolitical perspective than he was if he hadn't invaded at all. But it's not changing his strategy to continue to blow up innocent Ukrainians. In fact, it might be making him willing to attack more civilians because precisely of the failure of his initial uh, blitzkrieg effort um, to uh, that he thought would be unopposed on yeah, the, I mean, look, I mean, Ian, this is the bit, this is the bit Ian, I just don't understand. I mean, you had what? this great interview with uh, um, Finland's former prime minister, Alexander Stubb and, Stubb. and uh, I, I, you know, the exchange you both had was, was terrific. And basically um, I think you both agreed on the fact that Putin had three objectives from the war, annex Ukraine, push back NATO, prevent Finland and Sweden from joining NATO. Failed. Fail, fail, fail. All three. Failed. Well, but he failed because he so badly misjudged the response. Look, Robbie, I mean, let me be clear. I didn't think there would be a full Russian invasion precisely because I thought it was so incredibly risky and likely to fail. I, I did think he was going to invade. And I said it in advance. I said, I think what the Russians are going to do, they've said that there is a genocide by the Ukrainians against Russians on the ground in the Donbass. That is obviously, it's, it's fake, it's false, but it's meant for domestic consumption. If you're Putin, you can't allow that to stand. So they're going to invade the Donbass and maybe a buffer zone and create more facts on the ground, which by the way, would have led to a much more divided NATO response. Mm -hmm. And, and those, that's also the territory that they have the least hard time taking, as opposed to around Kiev, where it's a hell of a lot tougher. So I thought that was what the Russians were going to do and then sit on it and see. And instead, they went full in. Now, why did they go full in? I mean, I can give you a bunch of reasons why Putin decided he was going to do it. I mean, you know, you've got Biden, who he sees as older and weaker and focused more on China and Asia, doesn't want a problem with Russia. Back when he meets with Putin in Geneva in June, he barely brings up Ukraine. He talks mostly about cybersecurity, which the Russians did respond to. So Putin doesn't think it's a priority for the United States. You've got um, Macron talking about strategic autonomy and a different route. You've got Merkel, who had been the strongest anti-Russian voice on Ukraine, leaving um, office with a social Democrat now in charge of a three-party coalition. Mm. Um, you've got, it's wintertime. The Russians have maximum energy leverage. And you've got the Chinese saying, you are my best friend globally. 
a really big, almost unprecedented statement from a Chinese leader. So I can understand in that environment why Putin could believe that this was going to be a lot easier, especially because when he went into Georgia in 2008 and takes a piece or Ukraine in 2014 takes two pieces, there's not a very strong response. So I get it. But still, I think that this was an incredible, an incredible um, uh, misjudgment mm. on the part of Putin. I mean, he only sent in, you usually need on the ground three to one forces to be able to feel comfortable that you can take territory. He, he, he was sending in 0.8 to one. So, I mean, he clearly believed that there would be no Western support and that right. the Ukrainians wouldn't fight. And that, I mean, so the it's not just that he misjudged it. It's also that his own military advisors were blowing yeah. smoke up his ass. I would not want to be one of those military advisors today or ever for that matter. That's probably um, a good career move for you, Robbie. I think that's right. <laughs> um, so I promise to go bigger picture. So, I mean, who knows how the next few weeks or months are going to play out. But um, and already so many people have said, you know, that first week of the war was was the war that changed a century um, or that is going to define the century. But is it? And and, uh, you know, you mentioned China, but let's let's go there now. What does this mean for China? What does it mean in terms of the global order and U.S.-China competition? So I don't buy this whole century thing. I don't think the world works in centuries anymore. Things move too quickly. Uh, you know, you talk about a century. I'm not even sure that states are principal actors, right? I mean, it's a right. wholly different concept. But, but um, if you want to talk about a generation, in other words, the people that are going to grow up um, having had this war as their formative experience in the way that for me, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union was a formative experience. I think that has real lasting implications and will for Russia, where they will now be a pariah for the West for a generation. Even if Putin were to leave power, unless they were to become a functional democracy, I have a hard time seeing them avoiding pariah status. I think this is, that, that's, this is a new per, functionally permanent state for Russia, which is quite, quite amazing that Putin could kick that kind of an old own goal. And, and you can't imagine them dropping sanctions anytime soon. No. No, yeah. because I can't I can't see any circumstance under which the Russians would uh, behave in the ways that would allow those sanctions to be removed. I mean, they'd have to leave all of Ukraine. I mean, the, the loss that would be admitted would be extraordinary. Um, and even if they did that, you would still have permanent troops in the Baltics. You would still have forward deployments in Poland right. and Bulgaria and Romania. You would still have the Ukrainians with extraordinary military support from NATO that the Russians weren't, you know, weren't able um, to control. Uh, this is a vastly, in the best case scenario, this is a vastly worse situation for Putin than it was before. But you you asked me about China, and I think with China, um, it is less, it is much less clear. It is very clear about where Russia's heading. It's very clear about where Europe's heading. China, it's much less clear. Um, it's certainly true that um, Xi Jinping's decision to announce his friendship without limits with the Russians was not well-timed, given uh, that Putin is such a loser out of this global uh, conflict, out of this decision to invade Ukraine. And yet I don't see 
Xi Jinping backing away from Putin much at all. Um, I think they have very similar worldviews. I think the Chinese fundamentally understand that the Americans see China as their principal strategic adversary, and that is not going to change long term, irrespective of what happens to Putin. So if you're Xi, you know, you're not suddenly going to say, oh, well, now that Putin is in real trouble, I'm going to suddenly back away and support the Americans. That That is not in the cards. I do think that Xi Jinping does not want to be tagged with the Russians in a new global Cold War. But I also mm. think that Xi Jinping believes he can avoid it. And so what I think came out of last Friday's phone call, critical phone call, two hours between Biden and Xi, is that the Chinese have not decided to send military equipment to the Russians. And I would be surprised if they did. Um, and the, the Chinese have not decided to breach US sanctions against Russia. And I'd be surprised if they did. So they haven't taken steps that would lead the Americans to put the kind of sanctions on China that would really unwind globalization. But the Chinese are still fundamentally supporting the Russian position in the war, which they don't call a war. Um, the media, state media certainly reflects that. The willingness of the Chinese to buy Russian commodities certainly reflects that and to build infrastructure in Russia over time. And I do believe the Russians will end up not a global pariah because the developing world will be doing a lot of business with Russia. And in the same way that the Emiratis and the Saudis are telling the Americans, well, actually, you know, we, we should be looking out for our own oil producing interests, of which Russia is one. The Chinese are saying, well, we need to look out for our own economic and commercial interests and geopolitical interests. And by the way, Russia's more aligned with that even after this invasion than, than you guys are. Um, and so I can see China wanting to engage in negotiations, especially say with Macron to help ensure that the Europeans are on side with the Chinese post-Russia war in Ukraine and maybe you know, a new Normandy process, point two. In other words, you used to have Germany, France, Russia, Ukraine. Instead, you have France, China, Russia, Ukraine. I can see the Chinese trying to do that at, when we get to the point of a frozen conflict, whenever and wherever that is. But I don't think that there's a lot of big movement of the Chinese so far in response to the invasion of Ukraine. You're listening to Foreign Policy Playlist. We'll be right back. My name's Kurt Jaimungle. And this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in theories of everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. Um, so Ian, you and I can keep going and we often do. So I'm going to bring in some audience questions while we have time. Um, Daniel Cunningham uh, asks, um, you know, is there anything that we can do to persuade Xi to lean on Putin a little bit more? You know, is there any sort of Taiwan uh, 
connection here that you might want to discuss. And then later, I'm going to bring you back a little bit to uh, the West and NATO, Richard Engel, D Derek West have great questions that's coming up. Yeah, um, I, I'm not sure that there's any way for the Americans to lean on the Chinese here. Um, I don't think that the Americans credibly can put or will put sanctions on the Chinese short of the Chinese actively trying to subvert American isolation and punishment of, of Russia. So, I mean, given that I think that there is at least a baseline understanding on the Chinese don't want to see American sanctions on them, I think you can maintain some level of stability on that in the context of a bad and dysfunctional relationship. But the Chinese see you know, the American request of helping on Russia as a wait. You want, you want us to come down on our buddies, the Russians, so that you can go back to containing us in Asia? We're not, we're not into that. That is, I, I, don't, I don't think Xi Jinping has any alignment or trust with the US worldview on this issue at all, whatsoever, whatsoever. And that, so if there isn't much of an American stick that is useful, there sure as hell, the point is there certainly isn't a carrot. The mm -hmm. Americans don't have a carrot to induce the Chinese. There are things that we could have tried, right? We have all of these mRNA vaccines, the Chinese you know, don't, and only 50% of their over 70 population is vaccinated. This is a serious problem. It's why zero COVID is failing there. They don't have therapeutics. We do, we could maybe help with that. I mean, there are some things that we could offer, but I just think the conversation is so far from that being realistic that yeah. I just don't think we can get there, Robbie. Right. And that would be an admission of, of a problem uh, on their part as well. Yeah. Um, of course, your group predicted uh, zero COVID would be a big problem on January 1st, and it's, it's bearing itself out. I want to take some more of your questions. But before I do that, um, someone pointed out that... Um, I mean, since we're talking about various responses from countries, what about the fence sitters? And I, I just want your take on what that means for the global order. So, you know, interesting reactions over the last few weeks from the UAE and Saudi Arabia. And then you have genuine fence sitters like South Africa and India, which for a variety of reasons don't want to take sides, don't want to be seen to be uh, exerting much pressure on Russia. Uh, just longer term, how do you think all of that plays out? Uh, yeah, G zero world. I mean, one of the reasons why Russia invaded Ukraine is they because they believe that G zero applied so greatly that even a full invasion of Ukraine would be, you know, met with no international leadership. Now they were wrong, and the Americans and NATO and Japan uh, and Australia are strongly in opposition. And 141 countries at the UN General Assembly actually voted to censure the Russians, and that included almost all the representative democracies in the world. But a lot of those countries themselves are unhappy with the idea of sanctions against the Russians. And the reality, as you say, is that, you know, the developing world is not about to take significant economic pain, especially after two years of, of COVID and after, you know, more and more inequality. I mean, whether you talk about climate or you talk about COVID or you talk about financial crises or you name it, the fact is that the developed world is pulling farther and farther away from the developing world right now, where over the last 50 years, there was a belief there'd be more of a global middle class picking up. And so they're just, you, it's hard to get a lot of poorer and middle income countries to say, yeah, we're going to follow the Americans and take economic pain. Mm. 
There just, there just isn't a lot of that. I mean, the biggest impact of the Russia-Ukraine invasion in terms of lives being disrupted will probably be more people starving globally outside of Ukraine. That will probably be the single biggest impact because the impact of food inflation and supply chain disruption is going to be massive. There's a huge fertilizer problem. There's a huge grain and wheat problem. There's a huge food problem coming. What are we doing to help on that? Because if we don't make those people whole, why would they possibly support sanctions on Russia? It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And if you think of countries like Lebanon, which were getting 50% of their wheat from Ukraine, I just shudder to think about, I mean, already an economy that was destroyed. Um, let's do a quick lightning round of some some questions from from the audience. Uh, I know we're running out of a bit of time. So, Richard Engel, um, is there a moral requirement for U.S. and or NATO military engagement in Ukraine? I'll let you stew in that for a second. Derek West, will the U.S. Congress declare war on Russia if it attacks a NATO member triggering Article 5? Your thoughts, either one. Yeah, um, look, there is a moral imperative for America and NATO um, to respond to the attack on Ukraine. There is not a moral imperative to risk World War III by putting Americans directly in harm's way. Uh, which, and, and by the way, I mean, are we saying that? Why is this question suddenly come up on Ukraine? Is it because they're European? Are their lives suddenly more important than in Afghanistan or than in Syria? I mean, people weren't asking about the moral imperative of putting the Americans in harm's way there. I, I just, I don't get it. Um, I, I think it's extraordinary what the United States and Europe have been doing to support Ukraine. Um, there have been significant risks taken in providing weapons and real-time intelligence of the disposition of Russian forces. You are helping the Ukrainians actually defend themselves. I think that the reason why the Ukrainians will be able to hold on to Kiev is precisely because NATO felt a moral imperative to help a country that is not a member of the alliance. I think it's a really big deal. But the idea, if that, if that argument is being used to say there should be a no-fly zone or that Western troops yeah. should be in Ukraine where they would be fighting directly against Russians with nuclear a nuclear power, I think that's insanity. I want to be clear. I think it's insanity. We shouldn't be making that argument. The other question was what, Robbie? Remind me. Oh, let me pull it up again. Um, the other question was uh, very simply: Will the U.S. Congress declare war on Russia oh, yeah. if it attacks a NATO member? Uh, it seems like. Well, I think it depends on what attacks means. Um, I mean, uh, dis disinformation attacks, no. Cyber attacks against critical infrastructure, probably no. But if it really destroys a country and a lot of people die, maybe. If there is a you know, the missile that went from the Black Sea uh, that was launched a couple of days ago that hit Lviv a thousand kilometers away. If that was off another 30 to 50 kilometers, it goes into Poland. Do we, is that, is that an article five? No, I don't think that happens. So this is not like if one pole dies inside Poland, that it's an, it's an article five breach. Um, but, but we are absolutely in an environment where We've been talking for the last four weeks about Russian war in Ukraine. It is absolutely possible that we will be talking in the next few months about Russian confrontation with NATO. And therefore, the answer to that question is going to become more real and people are going to start debating it. Rick Newman asks if Saudi Arabia is still a U.S. ally. MBS basically giving Biden the finger, he says. What does that mean? Well, they're the largest um, purchaser of American weapons systems globally, 
and the military industrial complexes are both are very aligned and that's not going to change given the services the importance of parts training all that stuff it's not like i suddenly move from that um so i guess in that environment plus all the intelligence sharing you would still call them an ally but i mean is turkey still an ally i mean they're closer to the us right now but i mean they were buying russian defense missile systems um incorporating it as a part of nato you know i mean i think that what it means to be an ally is a little more squishy in a g0 world than it was during the cold war between the the east bloc and nato i think that's what we're getting at and there are some american allies that we don't quite feel as comfortable that they are there in as many scenarios as a typical alliance might have you believe um, last question, if you have a minute. Simon Reich points out that Kevin Rudd spoke today. I know you have an event with him later this week and suggested that she would step in right at the last minute if they believe that Putin's position is irredeemable. They won't betray Putin, uh, he says, but will try and adopt a more balanced position to uh, assuage the West. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. Look, if if Putin looks like he's about to be out of power, I think it would be very different. I think she's relationship is not just with Russia, it is with Putin as well, directly. Um, but, uh, but we're not, I think we are very far from that. I think there've been a lot of people out there, Ravi, that have been saying, oh, Taiwan is about to get attacked. There are also a lot of people out there that are saying, oh, Putin's about to be overthrown. Um, neither of those things look remotely imminent to either Kevin or me at this point for reasons that if we had more time, we'd talk about. Yeah. And the latter seems like wishful thinking. Ian, thank you so much. It was great to have you on. My pleasure, man. Talk to you soon. That was a conversation from FP Live about the war in Ukraine. Our thanks to Ian Bremmer for chatting with FP. And that's all for Foreign Policy Playlist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, you can email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. This show is produced by Zimone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. And I'm your new host, Laura Rosprow-Tellum. Thanks for listening. Till next week. 